The announcement that Jim forgot was uh, the conference we're going to have on Friday night, Saturday morning, Sunday, April 11th, 12th, and 13th on uh, evangelism to Roman Catholics. This will be a very interesting, uh, I think, conference for many of you. Mike Gendron, is, uh, this is his whole ministry, is going around training people in churches to witness to Roman Catholics. I think that especially, I know that many of you were raised in a Roman Catholic background, so I think that as this takes place, you may discover a lot of things that, that you didn't know about Roman Catholicism. So I encourage everyone to be here for that uh, that time. Also, one other announcement. Robin Rose uh, came down with a serious infection last week and almost died when she went to the hospital last, last uh, Sunday. But she recovered, and she'll be coming home tomorrow. But, you know, they have two little kids. And so one of the things that we're doing when in a situation like that is try to provide some, some food for the family. So if you would like to uh, prepare something that can be to take over to the family so we make sure that they don't end up with five chocolate cakes and, you know, one jello pudding and so things can be spread out appropriately, we have a church hostess that's part of the responsibility, and Sue Regal handles that for us. So check with her after class. Let her know what you're what you would like to prepare so that she can kind of make sure things are organized and that everything doesn't show up tomorrow and that we can kind of spread things out through the week to help take care of things there. Uh, her husband, David, works for the Navy. He's also in the National Guard. Last I heard, he was supposed to go on active duty sometime in mid-April. So uh, with two little ones at home, we need to be praying for them and also uh, helping out with their, that need there. It's going to be a long recovery for her, I'm sure. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship, ready to concentrate on the teaching of God's Word. In fellowship under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, who is the one who helps us to understand the Word of God, to assimilate it into our thinking, and then to apply it to our lives. So we always start off with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it is a wonderful privilege that we have the opportunity to be called 
the sons of God, that we have been adopted into your royal family and that with that adoption we have been given a vast array of spiritual assets and privileges and that it is up to our volition to determine how they are activated and how they are utilized. Father, we pray that we might not be distracted from the goal, which is to grow to spiritual maturity, to reflect the character of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives as it is produced through the filling of the Holy Spirit as he produces the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Father, we pray that we might keep our focus steadfast on Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, we pray at this time for our nation, for our president. He is a tremendous believer. He has tremendous confidence in you. We know from things that he has said that he understands principles of the faith rest drill and that he is one who relaxes. And once he has made a decision, knowing that the outworking of that decision is in your hands, we pray that you would give him continued strength and health and stamina pray for his family. We pray for other leaders, military leaders and civic leaders who are responsible for the security of this nation as well as the outworking of the plans, the war in Iraq. We pray for those from this congregation, for specifically Tom and Mark working over there, and we pray that you would watch over there, keep them safe and enable them to do their job well. We know they will have opportunities to discuss things related to doctrine with those around them. We pray that that would be a positive time for them to be a tremendous witness for you. Pray for their families that you would sustain them during this time. Father, we pray for us now as we study your word that we might be challenged by what we have studied, that we would be have the courage to respond to that challenge and to devote ourselves to the study of your word, to the assimilation of doctrine under the filling of the Holy Spirit, that we may grow to maturity and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. We're studying in Second John, Second John chapter, uh, uh, rather verse eight. Second John verse seven and eight. I want to go back and pick up the context there. So open your Bibles with me to Second John, all of thirteen verses. Second John verse seven and eight is the core of John's epistle. Now, in a short epistle like this, some may say, "Well, how in the world can we? Are we getting? We're already into our fourteenth lesson in Second John, and there's only thirteen verses." Well, there's a lot here. I mean, there's, there's a lot that we have to understand, and that challenges us, especially in our generation. And the more I have thought and gone back and read through this epistle, on top of what we have studied and learned in First in John, the more it brings out a particular uh, challenge to the spiritual life of every single believer. In First John, I mean Second John seven, we read, "For many deceivers have gone out into the world." those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you may not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Now the warning is that about deception in verse 7. The danger 
in verse 8 is the loss of spiritual growth, the loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. And we have spent a lot of time studying that. Now, I want to back up just a little bit and understand what is going on as a background to these verses in terms of its application today. The problem then is no different than the problem that we all face now. It's the same problem the Jews faced in the Old Testament that we studied uh, the first hour this morning in, in our study of 1 Corinthians. It's the same problem the Corinthians faced in the first century. It's a problem that is defined as called worldliness. The Bible calls it worldliness. Now, worldliness is not what superficial fundamentalist Christians have often reduced it to, and that is overt behavior. It is is not overt behavior. It's not smoking, drinking, dancing, going to movies, wearing makeup. A lot of that behavior may be unfamiliar to you. I remember as a... uh, Back in the 50s and 60s, seeing women with beehive hairdos and wearing long dresses, this is in the age of the miniskirt, and no makeup and wondering, what's going on here? And that's, that was typical of classic Pentecostalism and certain, uh, certain holiness churches, just extreme legalism. They, they define doing certain activities as worldliness. You get into Amish churches, and of course, worldliness would be having a telephone or television or electricity or driving a car or using any modern convenience. Worldliness is not overt behavior. Worldliness derives from the Greek word cosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S. And cosmos can refer to the world in terms of the uh, inhabited world, and that's how it's used in a few references in John's writings. For example, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his unique son that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. So we have the world, we have this the, the inhabited world. But for much of Paul's writings and in a lot of John's writings, it has to do with the thought systems of an antagonistic world, a world that is antagonistic to God. And in the history of humanity, there are a number of different permutations to cosmic thinking that have existed, some of which are opposites of one another. But the devil is always trying to come up with some system of thought, some philosophy of life, some way of doing things to somehow achieve his ends. And remember, the goal for Satan is to demonstrate to God that a creature is able to do what only God can do. What Satan's task is to show that he can fulfill his desire, and that is to be like God. So he wants to bring in a perfect millennium. He is the one who who was the energizing force behind the first United Nations called the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. That is why all of this talk today about going to the UN 
promotes something that is forbidden by God known as internationalism and globalism. This is not how God has designed nations to work. You must maintain national integrity. That doesn't mean there's no framework for some level of cooperation between nations, but you do not go to some sort of authority that is above nations. So systems that promote internationalism, such as the League of Nations and the U.N., are completely contrary to God's establishment principles, which he laid down uh, as early as the book of Genesis. So all of this is part of Satan's plan, and that is to promote world unity and peace and prosperity and to demonstrate to God that he can bring this about apart from any dependence upon God. Now, in case you have never heard anybody from a biblical viewpoint slam dunk the UN, just remember the UN is inherently a religious organization. Oh, you may say, how do you know that? Well, if you go down to the UN building, there's the quote from Isaiah that they will beat their their, uh, spears into uh, plowshares and their swords into pruning hooks, and man will learn war no more. That is a statement from Isaiah that applies to the millennial kingdom that the Messiah will establish. And what the UN has done is assumed for itself messianic goals and objectives which it cannot fulfill. So it has basically put itself in the position of being the Messiah. And they have uh, definite religious overtones. And uh, that's a whole different different uh, subject. But back in the 80s, the uh, Secretary General was very much into a lot of what we would call New Age thinking and globalization, and this underlies everything that the U.N. does. So, frankly, the United States shouldn't have anything to do with the U.N., and if they are operating on any kind of biblical principles, they should just kick them out of the country. But that is just... See, when somebody says that today, as biblically sound as it is, people go, oh, that's reactionary, that's hard. And see, this is a point I've constantly been making the last few weeks, is that the Bible is antagonistic to worldly thinking. And if you had any kind of reaction, you thought, well, I've never heard anything that harsh to what I just said, then you're demonstrating the principle that I'm establishing. And that is that Christians today are so have been so brainwashed by human viewpoint systems of thought that when somebody comes along and really teaches what the Bible says, they're viewed as some kind of a radical, some sort of extremist, some sort of a right wing. It doesn't have anything to do with right wing, left wing, conservative or liberal. It has to do with what the Bible teaches. And this is the exact problem that all of these groups from the Jews in the Old Testament to the Corinthians in the first century to modern Christians face, and that is a problem called worldliness. A problem is that we let the ideas, the opinions, the thought systems that characterize the non-Christian world out there influence our thinking in all kinds of ways. And that is because... We were raised by parents who brainwashed us with human viewpoint. We were raised in, in some cases, churches that brainwashed us with liberalism. And see, liberal religion, liberal Christianity, and liberal politics go hand in hand because they both have a, they're both built on the same foundational presupposition, and that is that man is inherently good. And the Bible says that man is inherently evil. 
that man is prone to war. Man is going, when he lets his sin nature go, he is going to be prone to destruction, to uh, murder, to tyranny, all of these things, and that the only thing that controls that is discipline. And sometimes it has to go so far as to promote warfare. Not that anybody desires warfare or should jump into warfare, but war is necessary times to restrain evil. And as someone once said, the only thing that is necessary for evil to succeed is for good men to do nothing. And you see the example in recent weeks of a bunch of so-called good men at the UN who would do nothing. And in that context, evil always expands and grows. And we live in a day today when people have access and can develop such horrendous weapons of mass destruction that it is no longer possible for someone to sit back and wait and see. And we cannot afford to create or make a mistake like the Europeans made in Munich in 1938 and let a power get a hold of nuclear weapons or biochemical weapons and use them when that is their track record and that is their stated objective. And you have to be, the only thing evil understands is someone who takes and maintains a hard line. The reason people don't take and maintain a hard line today is because we have bought in as a culture, we have bought into a postmodern worldview that rejects absolutes at the very foundation. They don't believe in any kind of absolutes. If you don't have absolutes, you can't take a hard stand. And when the world today has bought into cultural relativism and moral relativism, you no longer have a moral basis to make hard decisions. And so all you do is waffle around and you become wishy-washy and you put off making the tough decisions. This not only happens in nations, it happens in families. It happens, take it right down to the parenting level. You have too many parents today who don't have a foundation in moral absolutes. They don't understand that my sweet little baby is a horrible rotten sinner and has the potential of making Saddam Hussein look like a choir boy. And it's the responsibility of the parents to teach children to control those evil impulses. If you do not, just, just go into any kindergarten, nursery school, first grade classroom in this country, and you will easily spot the children who come from a home where the parents did not teach them to control their uh, baser instincts. I mean, they just run rampant, and you can just see some horrible problems in the making. If you let things go with a child, he is, the sin nature within all of us just gravitates towards evil and will go that way. And it has to, restraint has to be taught. That is the purpose for parents teaching discipline to their children is to teach them to uh, restrain themselves and to control themselves and to have uh, discipline. But when we live in a world where in any culture, whether it is an a Western culture or an Eastern culture, whether it's a white culture or black culture, whether it's a, 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 a an English culture, a French culture, African culture, whatever the culture may be, every culture has a certain amount of human viewpoint that dominates the thinking. 
And what has to happen in Scripture is that divine viewpoint has to completely erase and eradicate human viewpoint. When it doesn't, you get a problem that is known as syncretism. Now I'm going to go down here to another slide. I think where I have this. This is the basic problem. As you start off, on the left we have a box that says pagan gods, cultural values, and traditions. This is human viewpoint. What happens with many people is you come along and you teach them the Bible, and they add the Bible to whatever their background is. This is called syncretism. Now, I have a book here written by a man named John Cross, was a missionary for a number of years in Papua New Guinea, and he explains the problem this way. This is a major problem. He, he's focusing on the fact that this is a huge problem in missions. Well, it's a huge problem in evangelism and has been ever since Adam fell, and that is that man comes to the cross with the baggage of human viewpoint. And what he tries to do to maintain his comfort level is simply add Christ add the Bible to what he already has. And what the Bible teaches is complete exchange of the old human viewpoint ideas for divine viewpoint, what the Scripture teaches. This is what John Cross says. Syncretism is a huge problem in missions. This is not an exaggeration. For example, in some places in the world, it is reported that vast numbers of people have converted to Christianity. Certain evangelistic organizations pumping out glossy magazines show bar graphs protruding from world maps, indicating the numbers coming to the Lord each day. I remember reading such mag- such, one such magazine in the mid-70s. Curiosity got the best of me, and doing some calculations, I figured out that if the conversions were to continue at the stated rate, the entire world would be saved well before the millennium. As we well know, this has not happened. Are these conversions no more than paper statistics, he asks? Well, I would be loath to accuse anyone of falsifying records, but I think we can safely say that time has proven that a significant number of these converts are highly syncretized believers. Some consider these folk Christians, whereas others say there's no way they can be saved. And then he gives an illustration. Skipping down, he gives an illustration. He said, this is how it comes, comes home to most churches. You have two representatives from two different mission boards come to the church. The representative from mission board A tells you that he really hasn't learned the people's heart language. Now, what cross means by the heart language is the language spoken in the home, where you truly understand all of the nuances, all of the idioms of the language. He will tell you that uh, this man hasn't learned the heart language. He says uh, he'll tell you that, sure, using the trade language, what he means by trade language is more the business language, a superficial understanding of the language. He says using the trade language has its drawbacks, but as far as communicating the gospel, it works just fine. This man has mastered various forms of mass evangelism, and at the missions conference he gets up to give his report and talks about the thousands coming to the Lord, an immense turning to God. And the audience is electrified by his reports, and uh, the church uh, gives more money to support him. In the second instance, you have the representative from Mission Agency B, 
He just happens to be in the same country as the first man. This missionary spent years learning the heart language of the people. He knows the culture. He knows what the people think. He knows that most of the thousands turning to Christ are not truly born from above believers. Rather, they're people who've added a veneer of Christianity to their old beliefs. It looks good on the outside, but behind it all is just plain old paganism. They're just picking up Jesus as one other god among all the other gods that they worship. This is the problem of syncretism. It's taking the old ways in which you thought, your old cultural values that relate to morals, relate to origins, creation versus evolution, relate to politics, relate to every area of life, family, child-rearing, parenting, marriage, all of these different cultural values, traditions that you've been taught from your from your family, from your parents, maybe going back to whatever country they immigrated from, uh, taking these and then just adding the Bible to them. The result is that what you have is no longer the pagan background that you had or the human viewpoint background, and it's not biblical either. It's a new system. It's a new system, but it's not Christian. And see, this is a problem in America because so many Americans who call themselves Christians aren't biblical Christians. They've done exactly this. They've taken sort of a cultural, cultural opinions that they have, backgrounds, values, traditions, and they've just sort of added the Bible to it. And there is a veneer of Christianity. They may use Christian verbiage, Christian terminology. They may quote a lot of scripture. They may talk about Jesus. They may sing wonderful traditional hymns, but it's not Biblical. There has not been a renovation of the thinking in the soul. This has always been a problem in Christianity. For example, in the early church, as missions expanded out into Europe, as they went into places like France and up into the uh, area of modern Germany and on into uh, the, the um areas up in Scandinavia, missionaries often failed to distinguish the God of the Bible from other gods. In many cases, for example, I know in, in, in Sweden with Olaf, when, uh, I forget the missionary there, I think it was uh, Winifred, no it wasn't Winifred, I don't know, who, forget who the missionary was who initially took the gospel there, but Olaf converted. So did everybody else. When the king converts, everybody else converts. So now the whole country's Christian. But is the whole country Christian? No. They still have all the gods and goddesses they had in their old um, Scandinavian pantheon. But now they just give them new names. They give them new names, and now they become saints. And so the old gods and goddesses that were uh, that took care of fertility and good crops and, and the weather and, and everything else now became identified with saints. So basically what you did was you, you just absorbed the paganism, redefined a few things, but basically people didn't have to radically change the way they thought about reality, the way they thought about culture, the way they thought about the structure of the family, structure of the home, structure of society, structure of government. And so it becomes superficially Christian, but it is not epistemologically, I hate using a big word like that, it'll scare you off. It is not epistemologically Christian. That is, at its very core in terms of its knowledge, it's not Christian. 
Probably the most egregious example of this was that as in the early church in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries, as Christianity went out into areas as they were part of the Roman Empire in Greece, Turkey, Asia Minor, modern Turkey, uh, Egypt, areas in, in uh, Persia, they assimilated to uh, the mother-child cult. The mother-child cult is a very ancient cult that you find in almost every every uh, ancient religion where you have a mother virgin who would give birth to a child in the spring and then the child would grow up and die in the fall and come back in the spring. And, uh, and this was assimilated into the early church and instead of like uh, Isis and Osiris, it just became Mary and Jesus. The same figures that were used to worship the mother and the child would be brought into the church and just renamed Mary and Jesus. And so what you what the church did was just like a big amoeba, just went out and just absorbed these other ideas and brought the, them in, and they amalgamated into the early church. And this has created tremendous problems down through the years because people failed to renovate their thinking with biblical Christianity and they just kept what was comfortable and kind of patched it up with a few ideas out of the Bible, but really didn't change anything. Now, this is the problem that John's facing in Asia Minor. It's because of the background of the Greek culture, Greek philosophy, and Greek mystery religions. There was a movement, an intellectual movement, that was taking place at the end of the, probably throughout the first century, and didn't really culminate and coalesce as a as a technical system until the middle of the second century, and then it became known as Gnosticism. But the elements that are in Gnosticism are all there in the in the first century, and people are thinking that way. And 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 uh, Gnosticism was a movement that was intellectually stimulating to people. It has all kinds of permutations and ideas, and for some reason, people are attracted to things that are intellectually complicated. Somehow that if I can master all of these systems and all of this technical terminology, and if I can memorize all these flow charts, that somehow I am more spiritual or it's a better system or something uh, along that line. Whereas in Christianity, we have a very simple system. And this is what John has been teaching, what we've emphasized again and again. So I'm going to go back to our first uh, first slide where we look at the overview of the Christian life. God, remember, God is a logical God. He is, his thinking is coherent and systematic so that everything that God does has a purpose and it relates logically and consistently with other things. This runs against a lot of the grain for a lot of people who just are very sloppy thinkers and they're lazy thinkers and they just want to kind of believe whatever it is they want to believe and they really don't care about putting forth the mental energy to see that these things are internally consistent and go together. But God is. And God has given us a spiritual life that we receive at the instant of salvation, a spiritual life that's unique. It's unlike anything else that ever existed, even among believers in the Old Testament. And it is a spirituality based on grace. 
problem we have is that the world system has developed all kinds of alternative spiritualities. You have Hindu spirituality, you have New Age spirituality, which is similar. You have various kinds of mystical uh, spirituality and degrees of spirituality. You also have legalistic concepts of spirituality that if you just maintain some rigorous moral code, then you're spiritual. Today we have psychological systems of spirituality that if you, that spirituality is defined in terms of emotional or psychological well-being. And all of these run counter to what the Bible teaches. Now we have seen that the biblical concepts of spirituality are based on mastering certain spiritual skills. And these are really fairly simple. This isn't some sort of of a technical thing, and what we've done here over the years is just summarize and and uh, pull together what the Bible teaches in terms of various different categories. That we have a way of recovering fellowship with God, which is confession of sin, First John one nine. When we confess our sin, we're back in fellowship with God, and we are walking in harmony with the Holy Spirit. The Bible calls this filling of the Spirit and walking by means of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18 and Galatians 5.16. The spiritual life in the church age is a supernatural life based on right relationship with the Holy Spirit. The spiritual life is not a life that can be done and performed and lived by anyone apart from dependence on God the Holy Spirit. It is a supernatural way of life that has a supernatural means of being carried out. Then we have the faith rest drill, which is basically learning the promises of God and trusting God. We walk by faith and not by sight. That means that when the Word of God is more real to you than how you feel, than your opinion, than the opinion of your parents, then your cultural background, then uh, your, your impressions. When the Word of God is more real to you than your circumstances, that's when you're walking by faith. When you're trusting the Word of God, the promises of God, and you understand the Word of God, and no matter what, how things might appear, you know that God has spoken truly and accurately, and you're resting on that provision. And this may run completely counter to experience. Can you imagine what it was like for those disciples? We referred to this last week under talking about the faith, rest, drill, and fear. What it was for those disciples in Mark 4 when they're out there. And this, these are professional commercial fishermen, and they're out there in that boat on the Sea of Galilee. And Peter and James and John, certainly, as well as the others, had all witnessed storms. But Peter and James and John, as fishermen, had all been through storms, probably many storms. And their whole experience is saying, we're, we're history here. This is it. This is the end of our life. We've never seen a storm this powerful out on the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is known for having powerful storms. And all of their experience says that, it's over with, and we're going to die. But Jesus is in the boat. And they go to Jesus, and they say, say, say Lord, we're going to die. And Jesus says, says, why are you so worried? And he calms the sea. See, his calming of the sea and his power over the circumstances runs completely counter to our experience. But see, Peter and James and John and you and I would be sitting there going, 
this storm is so real and so powerful, it will destroy us, and we'd be, we wouldn't be punching the panic button. We would be jumping up and down on the panic button. And we wouldn't be any different from, from the disciples in the boat. And yet what Jesus is demonstrating is that faith in God runs completely counter to what you see, feel, taste, touch in terms of your experience, and that faith is essentially when the Word of God is more real to you than your circumstances, than your history, than your traditions, than your whatever else there may be from human experience. This is followed by grace orientation. We have to understand that God operates on the principle of grace and generosity. He treats us the way he treats us, not on the basis of who we are or what we have done, but on his character. And in that on that basis, he has given us salvation that is based not on who we are, what we have done, but on who he is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Salvation is free. Christ paid the price. So that's another thing about grace, is grace is free to the receiver, but it does not mean that it is free ultimately. Somebody always pays the price, and God paid the price for our sins, and that is followed by doctrinal orientation. We grow by means of grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, Second Peter 3.18. We have to orient our thinking to the Word of God. These are the basic building blocks of our spiritual life. As we come to understand and master these as skills, it changes our thinking. See, the Christian life is a way of thinking. The reason people have problems in their marriages, the reason they have problems with their finances, the reason they have problems raising their children, the reason they have problems at at, at the job, the reason they have problems in the world, outside of those things that happen completely outside of their control, but the reason they have those problems is because of wrong thinking. Wrong thinking produces bad decisions. Bad decisions always result in terrible consequences. And because we are not rightly related to reality, God defines reality, we don't. So we have to orient our thinking to reality, and that's doctrinal orientation, and then we can make good decisions. It's at that point we go through spiritual adolescence where we understand we have an eternal destiny and that there will be an evaluation judgment. This is the background for verse 8, that we are to watch ourselves, that we don't lose What we have accomplished, if you're a believer and you've advanced through spiritual childhood into spiritual adolescence, you need to be careful that you do not become deceived by false thinking, by uh, false systems of thought, so that you lose what you've accomplished and lose rewards of the judgment seat of Christ. Then as you reach going to spiritual adulthood, you begin to really understand what the love is that the Scripture teaches. That first of all, it's a personal love for God. You have come to understand His grace. You understand the Word of God, doctrine. You trust Him. You've got a track record now of using the faith rest drill, and you begin to appreciate God and to know Him. You can't love someone you don't know. And so as you've come to know God, both in terms of learning doctrine and in terms of seeing him work in your life, your love for God develops and grows, and that in turn provides additional motivation for impersonal love towards all mankind and impersonal love to other believers. We love one another as Christ loved us. 
And then that leads to occupation with Christ. We fix our attention. That should be Hebrews 12, too. We're fixing our attention on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. This is the love triplex, and as we mature within that love triplex, then we experience the perfect happiness of God. Jesus said, my joy I give to you, not as the world gives it to you. Jesus Christ gives it to us unconditionally, but it is the result of thinking correctly, of having our thought life align with the thinking of Scripture. Now, verse 7 warns the believer that we can lose momentum. We can become distracted through deception. Last time I dealt with the distraction of emotion, of emotional sins, of fear, worry, anxiety, revenge, motivation, hatred, where we put our attention on negative circumstances and negative events, and we give ourselves over to the mental attitude sins of, of fear and worry, and we begin to put our focus on self. What essentially happens is we become more impressed with our own emotions. We become more impressed with certain circumstances than we are impressed with the omnipotence of God and the truth of God's Word. And so we begin to substitute something for God's Word. People are always deceived when they are more impressed with something else other than the Word of God. That's where deception starts. When you're more impressed with your circumstances, when you're more impressed with your feelings, when you're more impressed with anything other than the Word of God. In contrast, biblical faith begins when God's Word is more real to you than the details of life, circumstances, human opinion, cultural traditions, or emotions. The spiritual life is often couched in Scripture in the analogy of a spiritual battle. One of the things that I encourage you to do in the coming weeks as you watch the news reports and we see combat before our eyes and on television is think about that in terms of your own spiritual life. We're, we are soldiers on the battlefield, and the rest of our lives, it's a battle. We have, we're not ever going to have a problem like they're facing, apparently some of the units are facing right now over in, in Iraq with logistics. We don't have a problem with a logistical supply line because the logistics that are supplied for us, the supply, everything we need for the spiritual life was given us at the instant of salvation, and God is always supplying us with the basics that we need to stay alive. As believers, if you're still alive, there's always hope for your life, no matter what has happened, no matter what mistakes you've made, no matter what failures there are, God still has a plan for your life, and God is always going to supply those basics of food, shelter, clothing, and the provision of Bible doctrine so that you can uh, recover from whatever failures there have been and move forward in your life. Now, in battle... As we watch the battle, especially as we watch the psychological elements of this, this warfare, you see that the enemy is constantly seeking to deceive and distract the, the U.S. from achieving the objective. Just think in terms of what went on before anybody fired the first shot and all of the deception that has gone on from Saddam Hussein over the last 10, 15, 20 years. He has played a marvelous game of manipulation and deception 
because he understands that the West really doesn't want to face the fact that he is as evil as he is. He has studied Stalin. He has spent apparently hours and hours studying Stalin. Stalin did the same thing. Nobody in the West could fathom that anybody could be as cruel as Joseph Stalin. Stalin was responsible for the for the deaths of at least 50 million Russians before World War II ever came along. He is probably the the uh, greatest murderer to ever exist. Yet he was brilliant in his tactics because uh, he made it seem as if the real problems weren't his. He wasn't the one doing all of the executing. He wasn't the one carrying out these these coups and 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 killing everybody. It, those were just the the local territorial governors or regional uh, p- power brokers. It really wasn't uh, wasn't Stalin. And Saddam Hussein has studied Stalin and studied the way he used power and the way he deceived people. And he's apparently a brilliant student of history because he realizes that people in the West who've given themselves over to this foundational assumption that man is basically good cannot come to grips with evil as it exists. I mean, if you think about it, Reagan was vilified and pilloried in the press because he characterized the Soviet Union as the evil empire. The same thing's been happening since September 11th, is that the liberal elitist press, you know, sarcastically refers to this axis of evil that President Bush has mentioned. Why is that? There's a philosophical reason. They don't believe there's such a thing as quantitative evil existing in the universe. And this is the foundational assumption of liberalism, whether it's liberal theology or liberal politics. And it operates on a false view of the world. I mean, let's put it this way. If you believe that man is basically good and man is not basically good, then every decision you make about how society ought to be structured, assuming man is good, is going to have devastating consequences if the opposite is true. The same would be true if man is basically evil, and you construct your whole view of society and everything on that assumption, and yet man is basically good, you would not be living within the realm of reality. But the Bible tells us that ever since Adam chose to disobey God in the Garden of Eden, the human race acquired a sin nature, which is a constitutional defect and propensity to evil. And only God can provide the ultimate solution to that problem. And when that is not honestly dealt with and grappled with in our philosophical systems, in our legal systems, in our political systems, in our educational philosophy, in our understanding of family dynamics, then whatever the solutions are, they will be marred and flawed and fail and end up producing disastrous consequences because they are not in the realm of reality. So we have to understand that just as we fight a spiritual battle, Satan is out to deceive and distract the human race through all kinds of false philosophical concepts and religions. And at the core of many of them is this idea that man really isn't that bad, that he can balance out whatever mistakes he makes by good deeds. Now, I suggest to you how fraudulent that is. You don't live like that. 
Liberals don't live like that. I mean, just find me one full-blown liberal who thinks that after he kills somebody, he can just walk into the courtroom and say, well, you know, look at all the people I didn't kill. Let's just balance this out. And, and I killed this one person, that's right, but I didn't kill anybody else. I've been good for 50 years. I don't even have a traffic. Let's weigh this out. And all the good that I did, all the money I gave to all of the charitable organizations, that, that ought to balance this out so that, so that I don't go to jail, so that I don't get executed. See that, and see, you can see how that really has influenced our judicial system because they'll go in and they'll plea bargain down a lot of crimes on, on, a, on a basis like that and somebody won't really do the time that they should do. But that is because we don't understand the system. But ultimately, at the very core of the way we live, we know that that doesn't work. You can't balance out an evil act with a bunch of good acts. That doesn't work. Only God could provide the solution, and he provided that in terms of Jesus Christ. And so all real, all reality, all truth starts with understanding what has happened in Genesis 3 and what happens at the cross and if your starting point isn't there, then you are going to have some real problems. Now, the problem that John faces with his church, this church in Asia Minor, is no different from any other problem, and that is the problem of Gnosticism. Now, in his day, Gnosticism was just sort of a hodgepodge of a lot of different ideas. It held to everything from reincarnation Basically, how Gnosticism came into effect, you had different influences. You had an influence from Persian uh, dualism, uh, Manichaeism. You had an influence, to some degree, from Judaism. It picked up ideas from uh, Christianity. Had a large influence of ideas from uh, Greek philosophy. And also from the Greek mystery religions and Greek mysticism. And all of this produced something called Gnosticism. And sometimes it's very difficult to get a handle on Gnosticism because it was a syncretistic system that just sort of merged together something from everything so that everybody could find something they liked and that they could, would be attracted to. In many ways, it's not any different from what became known as the New Age movement uh, back in the 80s. Now, you, know, you don't hear much about the New Age movement anymore. Do you know why? It's gone mainstream. It's not New Age anymore. It's how the man on the street tends to think. It went mainstream, and once it went mainstream, then it was no longer news, and you don't talk about it anymore. But I remember one writer said defining the New Age movement is about as uh, easy as nailing macrobiotic jello to the ceiling. Because it, it holds, holds to everything. I mean, it's it just a blend and mix of all kinds of ideas from uh, uh, modern psychology to uh, works religions, reincarnation, mysticism, uh, demonistic ideas, uh, Hinduism, monism, all wrapped up with a bit of scientific terminology thrown in here and there to give it credibility to a Western audience. But ultimately, the appeal from Gnosticism in the ancient world and the appeal of 
new, the New Age movement to the modern world in many other forms, whether you're talking about secular humanism and evolution, evolutionism, uh, postmodernism, existentialism, is that this has appeal to intellectual stimulation. See, the problem that we have in Christianity is the same problem that the Jews had going through the wilderness. God gave them the same old food day in and day out. We have the same old food day in and day out, and we live in a society, an existential society. We might even say a post-existential society is synonymous with postmodernism. Well, we want stimulation. See, in existentialism, there's ultimately no real meaning or hope in life. I want to skip through this slide to the next one. In modern, we'll look at this chart up here. See, what happens historically, this is just a development through time. You have rationalism and empiricism that came in in the Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th century. With Immanuel Kant, everything shifted. And you have the development of skepticism and existentialism in the 19th and 20th century. See, after Kant, where all meaning is defined as subjective rather than objective, then there's no ultimate meaning that anyone can know for sure. There's no objectivity anymore. You can't know that there's anything. All you know is your perceptions. You don't know anything beyond your perceptions. So every, there's no such thing as objectivity. If there's no such thing as objectivity, then how do we know anything? Oh, we don't. Oh, no. And we can't live like that. There's no hope. There's no meaning. So life becomes hopeless and meaningless, and now you have a generation raised on postmodernism and existentialism where kids don't have any meaning. So to get some meaning, they go grab a gun and they go shoot somebody. They're just trying to authenticate their own existence a a la Sartre. So you have skepticism and existentialism, and man just wants to do anything that will stimulate him to validate his existence. So we're all into stimulation. That's what it's all about. You go to movies. You ever watch the trend in movies with with uh, uh, with, with all the all the different uh, technical advances that they have? You go to some movies, and there's very little plot, but there's so much visual stimulation. You just come out of the movie. You think, boy, that was a great movie. There was no plot there. There was just a tremendous amount of special effects, and everybody just feels good because they got stimulated emotionally, mentally, and visually through all of the excitement that went on on the screen. You go back and you watch some some classic movie from the 30s or 40s where it's just plot and character development, and many young kids today can't watch that or hang in there or concentrate for two hours because what they need is stimulation. They can't think. And so the, you have the same problem throughout history. People want something new. They get bored with the old. They want something that is exciting and emotionally stimulating, promises something for everybody, and the result is they throw out the Bible. They get tired of the manna that God provides on a day-to-day basis, and they want to have the leeks and the garlics from Egypt. They're just like Esau. They want to sell their birthright just for a mess of lentils. Gnosticism in the early church appealed to the human IQ and human intellect. It emphasizes uh, human achievement and whatever man can put together. And if you ever analyze these systems, they're, they're, they're complex. There's all kinds of arcane terminology you have to learn, and they usually appeal to a certain type of mentality, whereas the Bible emphasizes a spiritual IQ, that at the instant of 
salvation, we were all given a spiritual capacity to understand the Word of God. There is an equal opportunity to learn the Word of God for every single believer. It doesn't matter whether you have a uh, an IQ of 80 or an IQ of 180. Spiritual truth, the Word of God, is understandable to you. Now, it may take you a little longer to fully comprehend it because you still have a brain that has to assimilate, but you can understand all the principles of God's Word with an IQ of 80 and achieve spiritual maturity. I've seen it happen. If you have a high IQ, often that gets in the way because you want to have that intellect stimulated in some way that goes against the Word of God. So ultimately, the issue always comes down to authority. How do we know what we know? You're going to get sick of this chart. In human thinking, there are three basic ways of coming to to knowledge, either rationalism, empiricism, or mysticism. And in rationalism, there's the emphasis on there's faith in human ability to think and accurately uh, analyze reality, starting from principles of reason alone, man is going to be able to come to ultimate understanding of the universe. Through empiricism, it's not reason. Uh, the source, ultimate source isn't reason. The ultimate source is sense perceptions. Faith in human ability to properly interpret those sense perceptions. And the method is the independent use of logic and reason. For both of those, so it really it strongly appeals to those who have a more cerebral orientation, and this produces the combination of rationalism and empiricism produces the modern scientific method, produces uh, modern evolutionism, and this appeals to many people because of its intellectual stimulation. But it's a pseudo intellectualism, and it's a distraction from God, and it's a way to explain reality apart from God. That always breaks down in history, and what happens is mysticism always takes its place, and we're in that place in history, in our culture, where the the hope that science offered broke down, especially with the development of the nuclear age, and in its result there was skepticism and mysticism grew up, And now we live in an essentially mystical society that emphasizes mysticism, intuition, and emotion. This was the same kind of thing that had happened in the ancient world with Gnosticism. It has an appeal, a certain sort of pseudo-intellectual appeal, but it is completely antithetical to the Word of God. People become enamored with all of these ideas, but unfortunately they never learn to think critically. You know, thinking critically is one of the most important tools that a pastor can ever develop. And unfortunately, we have too many people who think they can go from the pew to the pulpit without going through seminary, and it's created some long-term negative consequences. People have to learn how to think, and you don't learn how to think critically unless you go through the rigors of academic discipline. Unfortunately, in fundamentalist circles in the 20th century, there developed an anti-intellectual reaction, and so we we moved away from uh, a lot of seminary training. But we live in an era when we need to have seminaries that can train pastors to read Greek and Hebrew to exegete the original languages, pastors who know theology, know how to think critically, and after 20 or 30 years in, in doctrinal churches, 
where we have seen fewer and fewer men go to seminary. We're now at a place where we don't have men who are academically qualified to staff seminaries. You know, the old seminaries that we sent men to in the 60s and 70s are, are, are already increasing the speed of their drift to the left. Same thing happened 100 years ago. So new seminaries are springing up. There's a Oregon Theological Seminary in Oregon. There's Chafer Theological Seminary down in Southern California. There's a, another seminary that Norm Geisler started down in uh, North Carolina. The problem is finding men who are academically qualified to teach there. These, it requires men who have masters in theology and hopefully PhDs. But if they never went to seminary, they don't have the academic qualifications. One of the challenges the Chafer Seminary is going to face over the coming years is finding academically qualified men because too many men thought they, they came out of doctrinal churches, thought they could short-circuit the process and just go from the pew to the pulpit, and they didn't get the academic degree. So now we don't have the men necessary to staff the schools. This is a challenge to anyone out there who is a believer, who is uh, sold on doctrine to proceed, to proceed toward academic excellence and to get the advanced degrees. These are desperately needed. When, you, when we face problems at Schaefer Seminary, such as accreditation, it's important to have men who are, have PhDs in education, who know how to work within the system to get a school accredited. But when you have people who have uh, given up and have foregone those, those, uh, the, the academic discipline, then where do you get the men you need to fill the task? So there's a tremendous challenge to have people who are willing to take up the, uh, the challenge to go to school, to spend four years or eight years in academic discipline and sacrifice in order to get the tools needed to be leaders and to teach the Word. So we live in an age where we are in the same place as many of John's readers. They have not watched themselves. They are about to lose what they have accomplished simply because they have bought a deception. In many ways, some of these deceptions involve false systems of thinking. Other deceptions involve thinking that they could go from the pew to the pulpit without going through seminary. There's all kinds of deceptions in the world today, and when we get involved in emotional deception, when we get involved in intellectual deception or any other kind of deception, then what happens is there is a loss of reward, a loss of blessing. We risk divine discipline, and it can become destructive to our own spiritual life and our own lives, even in the sin unto death. Next time we will go forward into verse 9 and see the impact of how to deal with those who don't stick with orthodox biblical doctrine with relationship to the person of Christ, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by your word, to be careful. We are all so easily Deceived, we become impressed with too many things other than your, your word, other than you. Yet the scripture says that the only thing that should impress us is your word and your truth, and we should be impressed by the God who created all things. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their spiritual life, unsure of their spiritual destiny, uncertain of 
they're having eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, all you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. You don't need to utter a special prayer. You don't need to walk an aisle, raise a hand, make a moral commitment to God, uh, change your life or any other human uh, factor. All you need to do is to accept the free gift that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins and that by trusting in him alone you can have eternal life. Father, we continue to pray for our nation, our national leaders, that you would give them wisdom and strength, that our president who does understand absolutes, our president who does understand the reality of evil in the world, will be able to maintain his course, that he may provide protection for this nation. But ultimately we realize that our protection resides in you. You are the one who watches over us. You are the one who protects our borders. You are the one who foils the plots of the evil ones. And so we rely exclusively upon your protection and your guidance. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.